0: Welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. My name is Phil Strum. On today's show, we're joined by one of the most influential people in pro wrestling history, the former president of WCW, Eric Bischoff. Eric's worked in executive positions in multiple companies in his long career. He also had a period where he served as an entertainment executive doing reality shows and things like that. Of course, he's the guy who ran WCW, went head up versus Vince McMahon in the famed Monday Night Wars, where WCW defeated the then WWF in the Nielsen ratings for the famous 83 Weeks. 83 Weeks is also the name of Eric's podcast with Conrad Thompson, available where you get your podcasts and also through adfreeshows.com. He's also hosting a show exclusively for ad-free shows subscribers called Strictly Business, where he and co-host John Alba analyze the business. So right now, here's my conversation with Eric Bischoff. I'm back here on Under the Ring. So pleased to be joined by Eric Bischoff, the former president of WCW, noted pro wrestling executive and uh, disruptor to the system of pro wrestling. Eric, so good to have you here on Under the Ring.
1: This is the first time I've ever been uh, introduced as a disruptor. So I think... You know the term's been overused, but I think I kind of dig it. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Phil. Thanks for the invite.
0: Thank you. First off, what's it like being in the podcast game for you now? You're now with eighty-three weeks and with the with the business of the business with uh, with ad-free shows. What, what do you like about it? Uh, what do you like about the process?
1: Man, I could talk for hours about it. You know, number one, first and foremost, for me doing the podcast, um, it was very cathartic for me. Uh, you know, if you go back and you listen to some of the first podcasts that Conrad Thompson and I did early on, four years ago now, um, I was really defensive, you know, because I had spent the majority of my career kind of being on the receiving end of of you know the wrestling narrative in the dirt sheets and the peripheral wrestling media, and didn't really have a platform to respond. Every once in a while I would, but it was difficult because that platform didn't exist, and. When I first started doing the podcast with Conrad, I found myself kind of being defensive. Conrad would press. And, of course, Conrad comes at the podcast as my co-host, you know, from the fans' perspective, you know, people that didn't really know what was really going on behind the scenes. And as a result, you know, me being somewhat defensive, not somewhat, I was very defensive, um, it was uncomfortable for both of us, and it wasn't good. And then uh, it took me about six or eight weeks, and I started – having fun with it and i kind of you know, i used to box i was involved in martial arts and fought competitively for a long time and one of the first things you learn you know in boxing or martial arts is you know protect your chin You know, keep your hands up right here right and after about six or eight weeks i realized that i'd have a lot more fun if i just drop my hands and lead with my chin and have fun with it and once I started having fun with it, it changed everything for me. It changed the way I reacted. It changed the way I told stories. Um, it changed everything. And as a result of that, I have a lot more fun now talking about or thinking about even when I'm being criticized or when someone challenges me on something. It, it, it's now fun for me as opposed to, I got to counter that. I got to throw that left hook. going to sneak that left hook in there somewhere. I don't. I don't have that same approach. So it's been really, really fun. And you know, strictly business, which we do on AdFreeShows.com. That's a whole. That's a whole different experience, um, because I'm talking about the business of the wrestling business. And there are a lot of wrestling podcasts out there, and they're all great. But there's not one of them. There's not one podcast host or co-host out there that can speak to the business of the wrestling business with as much authority and experience as I do, because that's where I lived. I, you know, I wasn't a wrestler. I didn't do road trips. I can't tell you funny stories, but I can tell you all about, you know, CPMs. <laughs> I can explain what a gap principle is and how it how it, how it how it, affects, you know, the professional wrestling business or how it affects the WCW, at least. I can talk about that stuff all day long. And that's information that the audience really can't get anywhere else. And I, I have a blast doing that.
0: You know, a big part of your rise in wrestling was the NWO and the outsiders. But, you know, looking back on your career, you were the outsider. I mentioned before, kind of referring to you as the ultimate disruptor. Uh-huh. Um, was there one thing any more difficult than other things in your rise in the wrestling business, not being a, a wrestling guy, getting in, not being a legacy kind of generational and being being that business person and being that, you know, kind of entrepreneur? No,
1: the, the truth is, had I been more of a traditional, had I come from a, a more traditional kind of wrestling, you know, family or genealogy, I probably would have never had the opportunity that I did in Turner Broadcasting. Turner Broadcasting was looking for somebody who wasn't a quote-unquote wrestling guy. They had experimented with wrestling guys. You know, Dusty Rhodes, Bill Watts um, before me and Ole Anderson, not not necessarily as a, a manager in the company, but he had a lot of input. And Turner decided back in 1993 after the Bill Watts disaster that they wanted somebody that they wanted an executive to run WCW that had a television background and a business background, not necessarily a wrestling background. Of course, by wrestling experience, I came to WCW from the AWA. I, I, I My first job in the wrestling industry was in television syndication. Which means I had to learn all about ad sales. I had to learn about ratings and 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 how to sell wrestling to people who weren't necessarily excited about the wrestling product. And in order to do that, you have to understand the business of the wrestling business and why it can benefit a television station in syndication. So learning the business from the ground up. I learned, you know, production simply because I was fascinated by it and I had access to it. So I was an intern while I was, you know running sales and syndication for the AWA in the evenings, I would sit in during post-production sessions and learn how to edit, learn how to mix. Um, I ran dub machines. I often spent weekends, you know, dubbing tapes, you know, and, 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 and I I learned that from the ground up. I, I went from that to, you know, running a camera and, and shooting interviews in production I went from that to being in front of the camera. All of that before I came to WCW. I, I promoted, you know, small live events around the Midwest. So I had a little bit of an understanding of promotion and how it works. So I had a, a little bit of knowledge of so many different aspects of the wrestling industry before I came to WCW that I, I think it, it, it qualified me in the eyes of a few people. Bill Shaw, in particular, the guy who hired me for the position, because I did have a wrestling background and understanding, but I saw the opportunity more from a television experience or perspective than a wrestler's experience or, ex- or
0: perspective. Right, right. It, it, to me, WCW gets talked about plenty about what happened at the end of it. But, you know, looking, you know, researching for this episode, the legacy of WCW, it, it, to me, you changed the format of TV wrestling mm-hmm. permanently. You changed the format of pay-per-view permanently, and everyone in wrestling made a lot more money than they probably should have had WCW not existed. What what to you is the legacy of of what you accomplished in WCW?
1: Well, I think you you know you touched on it. Uh, innovation. You know, when when uh, I had my meeting with Ted Turner and, and and Ted looked at me and said, "Okay, Eric, you're going to go head-to-head with WWE every Monday night." I didn't expect that. I didn't want that. Had never thought about that. Wasn't on my list of things to do. <laughs> it, it it blindsided me. But when I walked out of Ted's office, before I even got to my own office, um, I was in the CNN center. There was a bridge across the North side of the CNN center and the South side of CNN center, overlooking the atrium and the food court and the retail shops and all that in CNN. And I stopped on that bridge and had a conversation with myself in my head. And, I knew right then in that moment that the only way that I was going to be successful was to be different than WWE. And I finished my walk back to my office and I sat down with a pen and paper and I made a list of all the ways I could be different than WWE. And at the very top of that list was to go live. WWE was taped. All right, I'm going live. I've always believed that live television is better than taped television anyway, but now I had a reason to do it and and I could justify it, because it's more expensive. I think, you know, changing up the format to a live format is one thing. Gradually introducing more reality-based storylines, which I, the obvious one is the NWL, but there were others. Uh, I think introducing the luchadors and the cruiserweight division, what was a massive, massive change in the industry. Highlighting people that typically were overlooked in professional wrestling at that time, bringing in the luchadors from Mexico and a lot of the Japanese, other people had done it before me with with regard to you know Japanese wrestlers, for sure. But I made them a part of the storyline. They weren't just a attraction, you know, once or twice a year. The cruiserweight division became the mainstay and a critical part of the success of Nitro. And what do we see today? We'll take a look at AEW. There's probably very few people there that tip the scales over 200 pounds. A lot of that had to do with the way the cruiserweight division was presented and accepted, and became a thing back in the mid nineties. So I think all of those things are important things, but all of it, if you had to pick one word to to kind of describe it, it would just be innovation.
0: And you know, one of the other things I said, and you know, obviously, great answer with all that, and you even look at what they're doing in New Japan right now, which a number of companies have done over the years. But again, you know, WCW was the one that was presenting new Japan to the U S back in the 1990s. So in a,
1: in a storyline way, that's, yeah. there is a difference because Bill Watts, you know, before me, uh, had brought in, you know, Japanese wrestlers from new Japan. Uh, it, it wasn't like I did it first. I just did it better. And I, and I, by better, I mean, by, by integrating, you know, new Japan and, and again, the luchadors in a regularly scheduled storyline presentation, as opposed to one-offs.
0: But also, you look at some of the things you did with the entertainment business and you look at kind of the way things are going now. You know, you see Rock and Cena and Dave Batista are legitimate Hollywood stars now. You have Shaq on AEW. You have all the stuff with Bad Bunny and Logan Paul and Freddie Prinze getting into wrestling now and Billy Corgan getting into wrestling now. And you kind of see that WCW was probably ahead of the curve in terms of trying to embrace. The entertainment industry and get in on the on the ground floor of it. Would you agree with that?
1: Um, no, I, I mean I appreciate that comment and question, but you know, you look at what WWE did. You know, they brought Liberace in for WrestleMania, and right. Cindy Lauper, and Muhammad Ali before I did, and and, and Lawrence Taylor, and uh, no, I you know WWE did it as well. Um, I recognize it or the opportunity that it was and built upon it and, and, and participated in it. But I I certainly didn't, I wasn't the first one to do it.
0: weren't the first one to do it, but I I feel like you guys really embraced it and maybe it wasn't totally popular at times with some of the, with some of the selections, but it was still getting everybody towards where we are. You you know what it
1: was when I, when I ultimately became president of WCW, and it's really funny, you know, going back and, you know, you have this narrative that, you know, it's changed now because of podcasts and people like me who've been in the business for a minute or two, and Bruce Pritchard and and others who now have podcasts who are behind the scenes and can talk about things. But before podcasts, the only narrative was that was out there was really produced by people, you know, wrote dirt sheets, you know. The, the equivalent of the National Enquirer back in the 60s and 70s, guys like Dave Meltzer and, you know, people that had no understanding at all of the wrestling business. They had no involvement in it. They, they, they sat in their, you know, bedrooms and sat in front of their computer and wrote about, sat on their laptops or their desktops and wrote about the wrestling business and spread rumors and gave their opinions. Um, and one of, you know, the criticisms that I got back in the mid-90s and late 90s you know, it was, oh, Eric Bischoff just wants to be a Hollywood guy. It wasn't true. What was true is that I knew that in order for WCW to become more popular, to become a, a, a recognized media property, that we had to expand our footprint beyond just the, a wrestling show. We had to have, you know, that's one of the reasons we did, you know, Ready to Rumble with with Warner Films. It's one of the reasons why I was pursuing, you know, Animation. It was one of the reasons why, you know, I worked with Dusty Rhodes and got him uh, with um, some television appearances. It's one of the reasons why Randy Savage and I, you know, did some things. Um, I was on the show Arliss, and there was a lot of effort and time spent on trying to expand WCW's brand and footprint into other forms of entertainment that would help grow the business beyond just the wrestling ring and the wrestling audience got a lot of criticism for that. And now you look at what, you know, WWE is doing and AEW is trying to do. And I, interestingly enough, I did an interview last week on strictly business um, with a guy by the name of Mick Pandic, who is, he's an attorney, business affairs, universal studios, or excuse me, um, universal television, and he manages licensing and is involved in streaming rights. We talked a lot about what's it going to take for AEW, for example, to increase their values with regard to, you know, a streaming opportunity. And one of the things that Mick pointed out is, you know, you have to expand your footprint beyond the wrestling audience. And I just kind of found that interesting, but you know, it's, it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch the evolution of the business.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing people have asked me at times with we, when you when you studied the business, I'm curious your perspective of this. Is the WCW fan still out there and oh, sure. available? And who is the WCW fan? Well, I think you know
1: that's a that's a big question. There's not one answer, but you know, if you go back and you look into the mid you, you look at the mid 90s, late nineties, you look at The audience, our primary audience back then, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, were 18 to 49. There was a lot of teens and preteens in there as well. But the core audience was 18 to 49. Well, it's 20 years later, and those same fans are there. They're out there. I meet them every time I go to a convention. I meet them every time I go to a Comic-Con, every time I do an autograph signing. Um, My podcast, 83 Weeks, is probably one of the most financially successful podcasts out there in the wrestling industry. And those are WCW fans. So they're still out there. I meet them in person. I talk to them on my on my podcast every week. I interact with them on social media all the time. So they're still out there. Who are they? They were WWE fans as well. They were wrestling fans. They just happened for a period of a couple of years to prefer WCW because of the nature of our programming, the way it was presented versus the way WWE was being presented at the time but they were wrestling fans in general. I think if you looked at the, the hardest core of the core of the WCW audience, generationally, they came from the Southeast part of the United States. They, you know, WCW came about when Ted Turner purchased Jim Crockett Promotions out of bankruptcy and kind of relaunched the NWA product, if you will, renamed it WCW, but a lot of the talent that came over initially were former NWA talent. NWA was primarily a Southeastern part of the United States uh, wrestling company. So that was originally our audience, but because of the things that we did in the mid nineties, we expanded beyond that. Uh, we, We became more popular and more interesting to a much broader audience than we had up until 1995.
0: Now You may have a more interesting answer to this than anyone else I've asked so far, but what was your professional and personal relationship like with Vince McMahon and 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 what's it like now? Well, I didn't
1: really have a relationship with Vince until I went to work for him in 2001. Um, my relationship prior to that, you know, he, he we were combative, we were competition and I was loud, I was obnoxious, I was in your face. I called him out, I made fun of him. I gave away the finishes to his tape show on my live show five minutes before his show started to make sure that nobody (laughs) to do my best to make sure that people stuck with us and didn't even bother tuning into him. I did a lot of really controversial kind of brassy things back in the day. So it was very adversarial, not not face-to-face, obviously, because I never came face-to-face with him um, during that period. But once I went to work for him, man, it was – it's one of my favorite experiences in the wrestling industry. I thought that was just the idea that we could be that. I mean, we were suing each other in federal court. Just all kinds of nasty stuff going on. But then, you know, you reach that point where, okay, the war's over. Let's join forces and see if we can take over the world together. That was fun.
0: And it seems like he likely respects what you accomplished. In I think w. so.
1: I think so. You know, I and and even when I went to work for WWE as a talent, I never really got to know Vince much. You know, I didn't work with him directly. I showed up, you know, Monday mornings at the arena, and I got the things that I was going to be doing that today that day, and worked over it, rehearsed it, whatever talent I was working with. Occasionally, I worked with Vince. We got to interact with him a little bit, but we never really sat down and talked, which is unfortunate. I, it's one thing I think I regret. I really would love to have sat down and had just a really honest, you know, no time constraints kind of conversation with with Vince about that era. Now, I I left WWE as a talent, I think, in 2006 or 7, whatever it was. I don't remember anymore. It's a long time ago. And then, you know, back in 2019, uh, Vince hired me to come in and be the executive director of SmackDown on Fox television. And I was only there for four months, but I was working with Vince every single day, almost every single day. And I should say every single night in, into the early mornings would be more accurate. <laughs> um, and I did get to know him a little bit better then. And I, I admire him. You know, I he's a very, very unique individual. And I think he's got amazing qualities. He's got his own set of weaknesses as well, or flaws, I guess. I don't think he has a weakness, but he I would characterize it as flaws. Uh, we all do. Human beings, right? Nobody's perfect, but I think overall I have nothing but the utmost respect
0: for this. And I think there might be a price tag on whatever the highlights of that Eric Bischoff Vince McMahon summit of the Monday Night Wars <laughs> might be in the future. Yeah, so- that would have
1: that would have been fun, right? It would have been fun for the audience too, because it now you know now we could have that conversation without the baggage of. Being defensive, kind of like I was when I first started the podcast with Conrad Thompson, 83 weeks. I was defensive. Had Vince and I had that conversation, even in 2001 or 2002, it might have been a different conversation. Whereas now I think we can both look back and and appreciate the competition and appreciate the things
0: that we each did
1: to compete with each other. And in the process, elevate the entire industry
0: any any f- interesting interactions with Ted Turner outside of that famous meeting where uh where Nitro was conceived no that was you know that that was it
1: man that was, that was I mean I interacted with Ted beyond that obviously Ted would call my office every Tuesday afternoon when the ratings came in for Monday night and uh it was always a great conversation and we laughed and we joked and we high-fived over the phone but I didn't really spend a lot of face time with Ted um, I didn't report directly to Ted so my, my interactions with him were again Tuesday afternoons and, and and a couple different meetings when it when it came to really big decisions that had to be made that Ted had to voice an opinion on or make a decision on be a better way to say it
0: now you had a unique view of wrestling both from the creative side and the business side is there any any person who is the most creative person you've met in wrestling and and why and is there anyone you, you always kind of thought could do it but but kind of didn't do it well, I
1: mean, I think from a, a – there's no simple an, or one answer to that or simple answer to that. I think when it, when it came to creative and psychology – because to me, they're, they're the same thing, right? People talk all the time about, oh, WWE creative or AEW creative, and I do that too. I make that mistake. Creative is really psychology. It's, it's You cannot have great creative without great psychology just like you can't have a great movie without great psychology. The psychology in the movie is kind of more in a traditional script format, act one, act two, act three, the hero's journey kind of idea. Um, but Scott Hall, you know, when Scott Hall was engaged and in the right frame of mind, Scott Hall was one of the most creative people I ever worked with. I mean, there were times when I would sit back and listen to Scott, kind of explaining an idea or vision. And I was like, whoa, this guy gets it. He got it in the ring. He could do more in a ring with a simple hand gesture than most people could in a 20-minute match. He could achieve more by the way he looked in the camera standing outside the ring than most people could, you know, inside the ring. Scott was amazing. Scott had challenges. Scott had baggage and oftentimes those challenges and that baggage got in the way. But if I had to pick one person who I think was one of the most creative people that I've worked with, it would be Scott Hall. But there were others, you know, Hulk Hogan, you know, Hulk has a reputation and a narrative because he's been in the business for so long. And, you know, a lot of people would be critical of his in ring wrestling ability, but Hulk knew how to, manipulate the audience in, in a way that got the reaction and the emotion yep. from that audience in a way that very few people have to this day. Um, Hulk was right up there too. And I know that sounds, it'll sound funny to today's listeners and audience who've never worked with Hulk, who didn't really see what Hulk could do with the crowd, how he could get them in the palm of his hand and manipulate them and, and, and get the emotion out of them that made the show so exciting from a live perspective in the venue, as well as how it registered on television and engaged the, the television audience as well.
0: It's funny because I always tell people that I think that Hulk Hogan is one of the greatest workers of all time, which gets a eye roll every time I say it, but you know, you watch his career and you got a six foot, Eight or whatever, 310 pound guy making everyone believe that, you know, he is going to get beaten for about 95% of any match. And that's work. That's work. That's understanding the audience and understanding the crowd that you're in front of. Well, today, you know, again, and and I don't
1: want to be one of those old
0: men shouting at
1: the clouds (laughs) 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 characters, but, you know, the word work, you know, with, with, with social media and so many people, you know, using wrestling terminology that they really don't understand. Um, they just read about it and make it part of their own vernacular and makes it sound like they know what they're talking about. But you know, Hawk used to say the greatest worker in the business is the one that makes the most money. And you know, I don't know that you could probably pick any number of talents from rock to John Cena to even Steve Austin, Steve Austin, because of his injuries, Steve Austin, before his injuries, you know, Pete WCW, uh, phenomenal performer inside of the ring, but injuries slowed him down and he had to learn how to work around those injuries because he couldn't do a lot of the really, really amazing things that he had been capable of doing, but he made the most money. was it wasn't that he was the greatest worker in the ring, but, he was the greatest worker in the business at that time. You know, is anybody going to compare Rock to Eddie Guerrero? I don't think so. Eddie Guerrero, if you talk to wrestling fans today, was one of the greatest workers of all time because of his, his presentation in the ring. That's what today's fans, especially in social media, you find as a worker, is your physical presentation in the ring. But I would say that uh, Eddie wasn't even a fraction of the worker that Rock was when it came to making money, obviously.
0: And we'll make sure that that doesn't make headlines anywhere. And this isn't, I know controversy creates cash, but (laughs) I I, I I, totally agree with you, though.
1: No, I I don't think that, I mean, it should be afraid of it or not. But I mean, it's a fact. What is a worker? Define it, right. a, A worker in the minds of people that live on Reddit and live on social media and debate back and forth and, you know, criticize each other for their opinions, their version of a worker is... Limited to the physical ability in the ring. In my opinion, the greatest worker is a person who can create a character in a persona and tell a story that reaches the masses and generates hundreds of millions of dollars worth of revenue. That's my definition of a worker. But if you want, if anybody wants to have a different definition, hey, have at it. I don't think there's any
0: anything controversial about it. And by most definitions, Eddie Guerrero was wonderful anyway, so it's almost pointless. No, I love Eddie Guerrero. (laughs) Eddie Guerrero was amazing.
1: Eddie Guerrero,
0: I think, changed the
1: industry in his own way. I mean, I love Eddie Guerrero. I, you know, Conrad Thompson and I go back when we do 83 weeks, we often do, we'll go back and look at a pay-per-view or we'll look at a Nitro and kind of break it down. And I can't wait anytime Eddie Guerrero is involved, I know I'm going to have a great time going back and watching that match a guerrero you know dean malenko i feel the same way about dean malenko phenomenal phenomenal talent Rey mysterio phenomenal phenomenal talent you can't compare anybody to those guys but in the context of who's the best worker i kind of lean towards the hulk hogan definition the best worker is the guy that made the most money
0: yep yep with benefit of hindsight, this is a question that an old WCW fan of my, friend of mine sent to me. With with the benefit of hindsight, is there a creative angle within WCW that you would want to have another crack at to do differently?
1: Well, <laughs> this is going to turn into a six part series if we go down that road. Um, a lot of them look. I I really is significant in industry changing as the NWO storyline was clearly it didn't end the way I wanted it to end. I mean, it was the, the, the wrestling version of, uh, gosh, what was that television series that was out for a while about the guy who was a kind of a uh, a, a closet um, killer, um, psychopath, you know, good guy during the day, bad guy at night. Dexter.
0: Oh, okay. Dexter was
1: a phenomenal series, right? Everybody loved that episode. Couldn't wait To see the next episode, and the ending sucked. It it people were angry about the ending of the of the Dexter series, and I kind you know the NWO is the wrestling version of Dexter, if you will. So yeah, I'd love to have a chance to go back and and take another crack at that under different circumstances. But I don't think about that that much. You know, I don't I don't reflect on the past hardly at all.
0: Okay. And what, you know, with your current uh, podcast, looking at the business, what interests you the most about the current product right now?
1: It's a tough one. Um, and I try to explain this because I get a lot of
0: heat, you know, when I
1: express my opinion. You? And no. I, and, <laughs> and, and, and so if people don't understand, you know, I don't watch wrestling the way 99% of the people that watch wrestling, watch wrestling. I look at wrestling from the business perspective. And I love watching the evolution of the business. I love watching the creative and the presentation of the product and how it conforms to the industry trends. Television has changed. You can't do things on television today. We couldn't get away with two-thirds of the things or two probably more than that 80 percent of the things that the WWE did back during the Monday Night Wars they couldn't get away with today the industry has changed but it's evolved it it's found its way to survive and prosper and grow and I love looking for and analyzing those changes and how they meet the challenges of a new entertainment environment.
0: All right, we're going to move to something we've been calling the three count. It's going to be three quick questions and your responses, so here we go. So you've hosted WCW events at the Mall of America, Disney, Club LaVilla, Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. If you were uh, still doing WCW, what is a unique outside-the-box setting that would have gotten a WCW show that you would want to do?
1: Wow. Look, it would have been great. But here's one that I really wanted to do that got shot down. By Turner Broadcasting. And it still upsets me to this day if I talk about it too long. But back in 1999, in probably the summer of 99, midsummer, um, I had a meeting with Gene Simmons of Kiss. And we agreed to create and co promote Kiss slash WCW merchandise. And part of that was to create. KISS-like characters. It's where the demon came from. Yep. And Gene was very excited about it. So was I. And we were making progress, making good progress. I brought KISS in, and they were part of a live show in Las Vegas um, that I got a lot of criticism for, by the way, of course. Um, but the goal and in, in the strategy was to have a pay-per-view on December 31st, 1999, and if you remember back then, you might have been too young. I don't know how old you are. <laughs> but everybody was so afraid of what was going to happen at the turn of the century. People thought that planes were going to fall out of the sky. Computers were going to shut down. The energy infrastructure was going to collapse. The world was going to come to an end You know, at the stroke of midnight, right? And I thought, wow, what a great time to have a pay-per-view. So I had talked to um, the people down in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, and we were going to do a big wrestling. It was going to be a kiss concert on one end of the field and a wrestling event on the other end of the field on December 31st. And the match was going to end at the stroke of midnight Pacific time. And I really, really want Jean wanted to do it. Now we thought it would be a great, so we'd open up with a kiss song. We go down to the other end of the field in the end zone, and we'd have a wrestling match. We'd come out of the match. We'd go back to the other end of the end zone, have another song from Kiss, and it would be that for like two and a half or three hours. And I got shut down because too many people didn't want to work on New Year's Eve because it was over the Christmas holidays and it was New Year's Eve, and a lot of the production people involved put up a fight and didn't want to do it and complained to Turner Broadcasting, and I got shut down. I would have loved to have done that. Love to have done
0: that. All right. Other than Wayne, who was your favorite character on the original version of The Wonder Years and why? Mm-hmm. You know, I like Fred
1: Savage's character. He was a good straight man, right? I, I like that character quite a bit.
0: Kevin. All right. Kevin. Yeah, Kevin. Yeah. I'm old. Hell, no, I
1: don't have a good memory. You're going to bring
0: it. Wayne in there because of the connection with Jason Hervey. Yeah, draft. Jason That's Hervey draft. and I
1: became really good friends and yeah. ultimately business partners and created and produced a lot of great television together. Well, I don't know if it was great. It was reality television. So I don't think reality television really falls into a great television category. But we made a lot of money. So I guess, <laughs>
0: hey, it was great. Well, right? somebody, somebody liked it. Um, so you have a time machine and you're allowed to book one historical figure. Doesn't have to be wrestling into pro wrestling. Who would it be? And why, and what would they do? Mm, 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 mm. Gosh, if it
1: was today, it'd be Bruce Lee, man. Back in what, the sixties. What would you do with him? Bruce Lee was the stuff.
0: What, what do you think you'd do with them? I'd put him over for sure. (laughs) Yeah, do you, not Bruce Lee.
1: Yeah. And he'd, and he'd, and he'd he'd have to take out somebody much bigger than him. Much bigger than him. Big old, big old six foot, six inch, 350 pound bully. Not bully, the wrestler bully, but you know what I mean, bully.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And just have Bruce Lee come in and just bounce all over the ring and knock the heck out
0: of him. All right. So, I'm trying um, really hard
1: not to cuss on this show. I you, hope you, you guys appreciate
0: my efforts here.
1: I'm <laughs> really,
0: really editing myself. In well, you made it through. So you can catch Eric uh, as part of uh, his podcast, 83 Weeks, and uh, and his new one, The Business – I'm messing up the name of this, aren't I? This, the, no, the, the
1: name of the show is Strictly Business. Strictly Business. I, was, I talk about the business of the wrestling business, so it's – right. You know, understandable, understandable. So you uh, you confuse it to. But the show is called Strictly Business. It's available at adfreeshows.com, and we talk about nothing but the business of the wrestling business. I think this week we're going to have a special guest on. Um, that uh, I'm not going to drop names right now, but be looking for it. You'll you'll see about it in social media. Uh, this individual has a national sports radio show on CBS Sports, um, and He's a huge wrestling fan. He's a huge sports fan. So we're going to talk about the intersection of sports and professional wrestling and where there are parallels and where there's not. So I think that'll be a fascinating take.
0: Well, we thank you very much for joining us today, Eric. I could talk about wrestling with you and business and everything else for hours if I wanted to, but uh, we really do appreciate your time today. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very
1: much for the invitation. Good luck to you, man. I'm, I'm here. You guys know how to find me anytime you want to
0: chat. Hit me up. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us again, everyone, on Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. I want to thank Eric Bischoff for joining us today. I'd also like to thank Derek Kukulich of Q Communications for this assistance. Join us next week where our guest is almost a doctor, but he doesn't play one on TV for Major League Wrestling, Davey Richards. Davey has a really unique story of being a pro wrestler while completing medical school, so that should be an interesting conversation.